0: Well, please turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. All of these scripture passages that we will be reading have to do with uh, the office of the pastor. What is the office of the pastor? So 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Please pay careful attention, for this is God's holy and inspired word. The Apostle Paul says, This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards... That they be found faithful. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, please turn over in your Bibles to the book of 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 14 through 15. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 14 through 15. In both 1st and 2 Timothy, the Apostle Paul is nearing the end of his ministry, the end of his life and he is writing to give instruction to Timothy who is himself a young pastor Timothy likely will be ministering in an age in which there are no living apostles so 2 Timothy chapter 2 verses 14 through 15 Paul says do your best to present yourself to God as one approved a worker who has no need to be ashamed rightly handling the word of truth This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now turn over two chapters to chapter 4, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. The Apostle Paul continues, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, please look with me in your order of worship in your confession, uh, confessional reading, at the confessional reading element. This morning we will be confessing together, uh, Belgic Confession, Article 31. Belgic Confession, Article 31. We are going to be looking at this article uh, through the lens of, of the topic that is before us, the office, the office of the pastor. Well, Christian, what do you believe about the office of the pastor? We believe that ministers of the word of God, elders and deacons ought to be chosen to their offices by a legitimate election of the church with prayer in the name of the Lord and in good order as the word of God teaches. So everyone must be careful not to push himself forward improperly, but he must wait for God's call so that he may be assured of his calling and be certain and sure that he is chosen by the Lord. As for the ministers of the word, they all have the same power and authority no matter where they may be, since they are all servants of Jesus Christ, the only universal bishop and the only head of the church. Moreover, to keep God's holy order from being violated or despised, we say that everyone ought, as much as possible, to hold the ministers of the word and elders of the church in special esteem because of the work they do and be at peace with them without grumbling, quarreling, or fighting. Let's pray and ask that the Lord would bless our consideration this morning. And merciful Father, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in your book of creation, which is that most elegant book in which all creatures. Uh, serve as letters, characters, and signs that point to your existence, divinity, and power. Uh, We thank you most of all that you also have condescended to to our capacity by giving us your written word um, that's delivered to us in a language that's comprehensible to us. We pray that in this moment, as we turn our attention to the teaching of your written word, that your spirit would be present, making this word effectual in our hearts and lives, and that it would be used by you uh, to build us up in our most holy faith. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, God is a God who made us with hearts and mouths, boys and girls, hearts and mouths. And he also calls us to use our hearts and mouths in a specific way. So what are we to do with our hearts? Yes. Eleanor? you were calling your sister? Believe and confess. Yes, we are called to believe with our hearts and confess with our mouths. And we believe and confess that God is what? What is God? What is God? Annelise, simple, single, and spiritual. How do we come to know the single, simple, and spiritual uh, uh, being who is God? Uh, Lillian, creation Creation and scripture. Yes, these two books: Uh, the book of (coughs) creation, which is a metaphor, and the book of scripture. Well, speaking about the Bible, what is what is the Bible? What is the Bible? What is the Bible? Violet? Authoritative, sufficient, and inspired. Yes, very good. The Bible speaks about who God is, more than the fact that he's single, simple, and spiritual. It speaks about God as um, Trinity. What is the Trinity? What is the Trinity? Isaiah? One essence and three persons. One essence and three persons. Yes, that's what we confess God to be. He's one essence and Three persons. Well, at the very beginning of our Bibles, we come across this account of creation. What is creation? What do we believe about creation? Did God create all things from nothing or from something? From nothing or from something? Isaiah? From nothing. From nothing, yes. Now, what is God's relationship with this creation? What is this gets at the doctrine of the providence of God? What What is the providence of God? What is the providence of God? What is the providence of God, boys and girls? Matthias? It's the will of God that nothing can be done without him or his organization. Exactly, yes. Nothing comes by chance, but everything proceeds from the hand of our loving, heavenly Father. One aspect of, of creation is the creation of man. How did God create man? How did God create man? Noel. Out of dust. Good. Marcus? In his, own image. in his own image. Yes, both of those are correct. Out of dust in, in uh, God's own image and likeness. Well, man didn't stay in the state of perfection, but sinned. And we call that first sin original sin. What, what is original sin? What is original sin? What is original? uh, uh Annabelle? And Adam, sinned we all. Yes, our our uh, corrupt nature comes from the sin of our first parents. Well, what do we believe about election and reprobation? Those are two big words. What do we believe about election and reprobation? Marcus? Uh, uh, God, he has mercy and justice. Yeah, yes, he mercy and he is he's a God of justice. Um, we also consider how God's response to uh, sin is to enter into a covenant, a covenant of grace, which we reflected upon earlier this morning. Um, this covenant of grace began in Genesis three and is renewed in all the other various covenants of Scripture, um, and uh, it's fulfilled in the incarnation, where Jesus takes upon himself a real human nature. Uh, that's what that's what the incarnation is referring to. Jesus took upon himself a real human nature. Well, uh, we are continuing in our. Our break from our ordinary series in the Belgian Confession. And the last several weeks I've been explaining why, why we have made this transition to the Genevan gown, why I no longer am wearing a suit and tie, but wearing this plain black robe. And I said two weeks ago that we should we should think of this topic of ministerial attire, meaning what pastors wear during corporate worship, through the lens of purposeful freedom purposeful freedom. This means that ministerial attire during corporate worship is an area of freedom. It's a circumstance of worship. God has not told us what pastors should wear on Sunday mornings. In the same way, God has not told us whether you should be sitting in chairs or pews or whether we should meet at 9.30 on Sunday mornings or 10.30 on Sunday mornings. These areas are areas of freedom. Nevertheless, even within these areas of freedom, even within the circumstances of worship, we are called to be purposeful as we make decisions within these areas. What do I mean by purposeful? We are to make decisions that best represent and reflect what we believe as a Reformed church. It's our belief as a consistory that the Genevan gown best represents and reflects what we believe as a Reformed church. Or... To put it another way, it is the most purposeful option. Now, why is it the most purposeful option? How does it reflect what we believe as a Reformed church? Well, last week we considered how the robe signifies our Catholicity. It doesn't tie me or associate me with anything in our present culture, but rather associates me with a historic Christian church. We are called to be lower C Catholic Christians, and the gown represents this. Today, we're going to consider how the gown represents, or excuse me, how the gown de emphasizes the individuality of the man and emphasizes the office of the pastor. So the gown uh, de emphasizes the individuality of the man while at the same time emphasizing the office of the pastor. So those are the two points I want us to dwell upon this morning. So first, the gown de-emphasizes, de-emphasizes, hides, you could say, the individuality of the man, of the pastor. Now, one of the main ways in which we express ourselves, express our personality, express our individuality, is through what we wear. The reason why all you women are not dressed exactly the same way and all you men are not dressed exactly the same way is because you are different people, different personalities. And even if you men don't think you have a style, that reflects part of your personality. Uh, one of the main ways in which we express ourselves is through what we wear. Now, um, when a pastor wears a robe, you can't discern that pastor's personality or individuality through what he is wearing. The, the robe cloaks that. It hides the individuality of the man during times of corporate worship. This is how uniforms in many professions function. Think of a doctor in a white coat, or a judge in a gown, or a police officer in his attire, or someone in the military in his gear. When you see someone in these uniforms, you don't think of their their distinct individuality. No, you you think about their respective offices and the duties enjoined to those offices. So it is with the robe. The robe should should associate in your minds not who I am in my individual capacity, but my office and the duties enjoined to that office. You imagine there's a a young pastor in his 20s who is serving a congregation, and maybe he grew up in this congregation. Maybe he knows a, a lot of people in the congregation, and many people in the congregation knew that pastor when he was a boy, 10, 12, 14 years old. Maybe this young pastor is friends and, and established friendships within the congregation before he was called into mission, ministry. I would imagine that it would be hard for a lot of people in that congregation to now view that young man as their pastor. Well, the, the robe would help in the situation because the robe hides that man's identity as a young man as a relative, as a friend, and points people's attention to his office. That regardless of what your relationship is with this young man, he is, in this moment, your pastor, your ambassador, your herald, bringing to you God's law and gospel. Furthermore, we live in the age of expressive individualism. For those of you who have taken part in our book study, Expressive individualism is when we grant ultimate authority to our feelings and we desire to to give social or outward expression to those feelings and then we demand other people affirm us in our, our feelings and outward expression of those feelings. Now in this age of expressive individualism, pastors are very much tempted to turn the pulpit into a platform, a platform for them to express their inner authenticity. They're tempted to view the church, not as an institution that stands over us all to mold us and change us and transform us, but merely as an institution uh, for individuals to express their deepest held feelings. Now again, if the pulpit is a platform, then it makes sense that pastors should express their individuality through what they're wearing. However, the pulpit is not a platform, it's a pulpit. It's the place where God's ambassador ascends to announce not his word, but God's word. The robe then helps to protect the pulpit and prevent the pulpit from becoming a platform. And so the robe de-emphasizes, you could say it hides the individuality of the man. Now at the same time, the robe also emphasizes the office, the office of the pastor. Now, what is the office of the pastor? How does the Bible speak about this office? There are two aspects of the office of the pastor that I want us to dwell upon this morning. The first of which is that the pastor, or a pastor, is a steward of the word and the sacraments. A pastor is a steward of the word and the sacraments. We see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul says as much. He says that pastors are stewards of the mysteries of God. Now, in the ancient world, a steward was employed by a master to be in charge of a household or of an estate. A steward was not a master. A steward was very much under authority, the authority of the master of the household or of the estate. And so it is within the church. A pastor is not a master. A pastor is not a king. The pastor is not the king of the church. A pastor is an under-shepherd. A pastor is employed by Christ himself and under his authority. A pastor is a steward. A steward of what? A steward of the mysteries of God. Now, what is Paul referring to here when he says the mysteries of God? Well, listen to... What John Calvin says as he comments on this phrase in his commentary. He says, It is an honorable distinction that Paul confers upon the gospel when he terms its contents the mysteries of God. Sacraments are connected with these mysteries as appendages. Calvin then interprets this phrase as a reference to the word, specifically to the gospel and to the sacraments. God here is saying that pastors are charged to be ministers, stewards of the word and of the sacraments. Just as doctors are called to be physicians of the body, just as um, judges are called to be magistrates of the law, pastors are called to be stewards, stewards of the word and the sacraments. This is why we see in 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul telling Timothy, who is himself a young pastor, to do what? To preach the word in season and out of season, to reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. He even goes on to say that Timothy should persevere in this duty even when people have itching ears and desire to turn away from the truth. Nevertheless, Timothy is to remain steadfast in this calling. Pastors called to be a steward of the word and of the sacraments. Martin Lloyd Jones, who was a British Reformed evangelical in the UK in the 20th century, he pastored at Westminster Chapel in London for over 30 years. In 1969, he came over to the, the States and did a series of lectures at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia. And in listen to what what uh, what he said in one of his lectures to to these seminary students. He said, or he says, at this point I would add a word which may come as a surprise to some and indeed sound almost ridiculous. I believe it is good and right for a preacher to wear a gown in the pulpit. The gown to me is a sign of the call, a sign of the fact that a man has been set apart to do this work. It is no more than that, but it is that. The reason why Lloyd-Jones encouraged these seminary students in 1969 to, to wear the gown is because the gown signifies this aspect of the office that the pastor has been charged not to be an entertainer or anything else, but to be a steward of the word and the sacraments, to preach the word in season and out of season, to reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. This is what the gown represents. Again, when you see a doctor in a white coat, you think of, someone who has been charged to be a physician of the body. So too, when you see the gown, you should, see, you should think of someone who has been charged to preach the word and administer the sacraments. This is what the gown represents. This is what the gown signifies. Well, the second aspect of the office of the pastor that I'd like us to dwell upon is that pastors are called to be specialists in the Bible. They're called to be specialists in the Bible. This is part of what the office entails. We see this in 2 Timothy 2:15. So in 2 Timothy 2:15, Paul again is talking to Timothy who is a young pastor, and he tells Timothy, "Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed rightly handling the word of truth." What is Paul saying here? Paul is telling Timothy that he is to show himself to be a well-approved worker, that he is to rightly handle the word of truth. This requires a certain level of training and competency. The Spirit gives grants us um, many blessings, but the Spirit doesn't automatically grant every single believer the ability to competently teach and preach the word of God. If that were the case, there would be no need for ministers, no need for preachers. What Paul is telling telling Timothy here requires a certain level of training and competency. This is the foundational verse for why seminaries exist and why ordinarily men should be required to go to seminary before they're ordained to the gospel ministry. Ministers need to be able to rightly handle the word of truth. They need to be specialists in the Bible this doesn't just come automatically. The Spirit doesn't just immediately give you the gifts to faithfully interpret the Bible in its original languages so that you can preach and teach it according to our creeds and confessions. This requires training and competency. J. Gresham Machen, he was the, one of the founders of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, as well as Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia. And on the day in which Westminster Theological Seminary was inaugurated, he gave an inauguration speech. And this is what he said in, in that speech. Let it never be forgotten that a theological seminary is a school for specialists. We are living in an age of specialization. There are specialists on eyes, and specialists on noses, and throats, and stomachs, and feet, and skin. There are specialists on teeth. One set of specialists on putting teeth in and another set of specialists on pulling teeth out. Amid all of these specialties, we at Westminster Seminary have a specialty which we think, in comparison with these others, is not so very small. Our specialty is found in the Word of God. Specialists in the Bible, that is what Westminster Seminary will endeavor to produce. Uh, Machen doesn't necessarily cite 2 Timothy 2.15, but he very much could have. Uh, The whole goal behind seminary education is to uh, train men so that they might be able to rightly handle the word of truth. This is what it means to be a pastor. It means to be a specialist in the Bible. Now the robe reflects and symbolizes this aspect of the office of pastor. In the 16th century, the Genevan gown, the plain black robe, also served as the typical attire of university professors in uh, the academic setting. This then reflected how the Reformed Church believed in an educated ministry. They believed that their pastors should be trained and educated, that they should be able to interpret and read the original languages, that they should be specialists in the Bible. That is what the gown, as an academic gown, represented and reflected in the 16th century. So the robe not only points to pastors being stewards of the, mystery, uh, of the mysteries of God, but also points to this idea that pastors are to be specialists in the Bible. They are to rightly handle the word of truth and thus show themselves to be a well-approved worker. The gown then de-emphasizes the individuality of the man and emphasizes the office of the pastor. Now, the, G- the Genevan gown was the typical attire for Reformed and pa- uh, Presbyterian pastors in the 16th century, the 17th century, 18th century, 19th century, even into the 20th century. However, beginning in the 19th century, wearing the Genevan gown became an increasingly unpopular option. Why, you might ask? Well, to answer that question, we need to turn our attention to the history and effect of revivalism, specifically in America. Now, what is revivalism? Well, revivalism is a movement that was a pan-denominational movement. It wasn't necessarily tied to one specific denomination. It especially flourished in American Christianity, American Protestant Christianity. Revivalism especially emphasized experience and emotion over catechesis and knowledge meaning uh, you know all we really care about is having a zeal a burning in our bosom for jesus we don't really care about theology or who god is or what the atonement accomplished that's dry deadening theology we care about having that that stoking that burning in our bosom for jesus it emphasized Experience and emotion over catechesis and knowledge. It also emphasized individual piety over corporate piety, meaning what you do by yourself in your prayer closet is more important than coming to church on the Lord's Day and hearing the word preached and participating in the sacraments. It emphasized individual piety over corporate piety. It also emphasized every member ministry and it de-emphasized the need for ordained pastors and elders. We all have the Holy Spirit, right? Since we have the Holy Spirit, there's nothing a pastor does that we can't do. We can baptize, we can teach, we can preach, we can disciple. It emphasized every member ministry and at the same time de-emphasized the need for ordained pastors and elders. It emphasized informal community among Christians in opposition to the formal structures of church membership discipline, ecclesiastical assemblies, ordination. Again, it wanted the church really just to be a social gathering in which there was no structure, no one with authority, uh, just people experiencing fellowship and friendship. And then in the last 70 years or so, revivalism has turned the church really into a concert hall, where the uh, the pulpit is a platform for the pastor to express his inner authenticity. Congregational singing has been reduced to merely being spectators of a few musicians on stage. Listen to how one author describes revivalism. One author says that revivalism gave birth to religious zeal without morality, church without theology, preaching without sacrament, community without order. Let me say that again. Revivalism gave birth to religious zeal without morality. This means... Uh, all that really matters is that we, had zeal for, we have zeal for God. It doesn't, doesn't really matter whether or not that zeal conforms with, the God, with what God's word says or with God's law, as long as you have zeal. Right? A burning in the bosom for Jesus, that's what matters. Church without theology. Again, let's go to church, let's have a good time, let's be entertained, but let's not focus too much on what God's word actually says. On how God's word has been confessed throughout the history of the church. Theology, of course, will have a deadening effect on our souls. Preaching without sacrament. Yeah, let's go go to church and hear a a good talk, but let's not emphasize the sacraments too much because the sacraments are stuffy and Catholic. We don't want to give them too high of a place in, in the church. Community without order. Yeah, let's gather believers together so that they can have fellowship, but let's not have any order. Let's not have any elders who exercise any sort of authority or, or, or shepherd individuals. Let's not have church membership. Let's have community without order. This is revivalism, and revivalism has absolutely flourished in American Christianity. We all, no doubt, have been affected by revivalism. This is This is really the essence of Protestant Christianity in this country for the last 200, 300 years. Now, because of this movement, there was a push to get rid of the rope. Why, you might ask. Well, again, think about what the robe emphasizes. It emphasizes the fact that a pastor is set apart as a minister of the word and the sacraments. A pastor is a specialist in the Bible and thus, a pastor can do things that no one else in the church can do. Preach and administer the sacraments. Well, the dominant view among revivalistic Christianity has been that there's nothing that the pastor does that we can't do. Right? The pastor baptizes, I can baptize. The pastor preaches, I can preach. The pastor disciples, I can disciple. There's nothing the, the pastor does that we can't do because we all have the Holy Spirit. If anything, the pastor is just really the coach helping us to do these things better. Now, if that's the dominant view of the office of the pastor in revivalistic Christianity, then it makes sense why these churches have encouraged their pastors to wear things in the pulpit that mirrors the uh, average male in the pew. They want no distinction between the pastor and the average male in the pew because there really is nothing distinctive about the office of the pastor because anything the pastor does, we can do especially if you're gifted or knowledgeable or read the right books. Can you see how what a pastor wears in the pulpit necessarily betrays what a church believes about the office of the pastor? The desire for pastors to look like the average person in the pew betrays an understanding of the office in which the office of the pastor um, really is nothing distinctive. (laughs) And so whatever a pastor wears in the pulpit very much betrays that church's understanding of the office of the pastor. So think about what your preference, your personal preference is for what I wear during worship on Sundays. And how does that betray what your understanding of the office of the pastor is? So the robe, the robe functions to de-emphasize the individuality of the man while at the same time emphasizing the, What is distinctive about the office? The pastor has been charged by God to be a steward of the word and the sacraments and to be a specialist of the Bible. Next week, we're going to turn our attention to considering how the robe functions to represent our belief that worship, corporate worship on the Lord's Day, is a reverent time. Let's pray.